everyone, welcome back to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. Thank you for taking another trail journey with me today. Uh, the conversation that I had today was probably one of the most epic conversations I've had. It shows what humans are actually capable of if you set your mind to it. You enter into the pain cave and you step right out a better person. My next guest is an ultra adventure athlete. He's the king of the FKTs. He has more fastest known times than anyone else in the world. And for his 100th this past summer, he completed and crushed the state of Washington's 100 highest peaks in a mere 50 days, 23 hours, 43 minutes. That's 90 days faster than the previous record. There's a lot to unpack with this conversation and I'm excited for my next guest. So here he is, Jason Hardrath. Well, help me turn the turning. Well, help me get it right. Jeff, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy you're having me on. I'm, I'm excited to talk. Let's do this. Yeah, man. So I, as as I was kind of referencing uh, before we jumped on here, it's like, yeah, you and I had a conversation for the first time uh, a few weeks ago, and you were kind of telling me your story and give me some of the background really quick. So I kind of had some notes to go off of, and I literally was writing them down and I, I didn't even look at the any, any research for a couple of days later. And I started doing the research and I started putting two and two together at that point in time. And I was like, yeah, this is, it's really cool stuff. This is great. This is going to be a great conversation. And then I realized, I was like, holy shit, this guy crushed everything that I, I could ever imagine. So <laughs> I, from that moment, I was like, okay, I cannot wait to get you on this podcast. I think it's it's such an amazing feat that you what what you did and what you're still doing to this day. So thank you for for joining me today. Yeah, I mean absolutely the the journey to 100 FKTs is a tough thing to like wrap one's mind around by itself. It's like okay, that's 100 different records, but then to parse out like oh wait, for his 100th record, his 100th fastest known time, he climbed 100 separate peaks <laughs> to count as one, not, not each one of them as one I know. to count as one. And yeah, I mean, this Bulger's effort, it's like, it sits at the confluence of what goes into through hiking and the logistics that go into like doing big trails, like the PCT. It's, it's a mixture of that with mountaineering skills, like knowing routes, knowing how to do route finding, knowing how to orienteer, knowing how to bushwhack yourself up to the proper aspect of the mountain to actually make it to the summit. Uh, it's doing a hundred iterations of that. And on top of it, it's combining those two things with these big ultra endurance pushes and all the skills in nutrition and, and, you know, the mental games we have to play as ultra athletes. It's all of that just like wrapped up into, into a package. And yeah, no, it's, I think, I think actually I get this reaction a lot from people where they finally like put it together and they're like, Oh, wait a minute. That's, that's kind of big. I'm like, I, well, yeah, that's the way I, that's the way I was looking at it too. And like, I was telling my wife after I, you know, like I said, a couple of days later, I was like, Des, you, you gotta look at this. You gotta watch these videos. You gotta listen to this comment. Like, this is amazing to me. And I can, it's so yes, I'm right there in the same line of, as you said, everybody else. So, um, and I am quite interested in the logistics of, I'm a race director. I get really, I nerd out on the logistics of how things are put together. So we'll get into that in, in a little bit once we get around 
to the, you know the conversation of the of the Bulgers list. But I just kind of want to start like how, how did how do you even get into the FKT game? Like how do you how do you start like because you're if I read right you were a runner when you were a kid and you kind of were out to try and get the fastest time as as a kid in your class or your school, right? So how do you go from <laughs> you from that, that yeah. from that to where you're at now cuz there's been there's and there's definitely and you'll tell me the story, there's definitely a lot that goes in between those two times um as far as like even a career ending piece for your triathlon game, <laughs> you know, career <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's, into that. let's go ahead and do the uh the 30,000 foot flyover. Yeah, um, let's do it. So yeah, uh you alluded to it in in middle school, I had this this crack to be the the, this, you know, this chance, this opportunity to be the fastest kid in my, in my middle school. And, you know, this is just in PE, right. Running the PE mile. Um, and I saw like this opportunity, like I kind of wanted to break six minutes and it was, uh, I was running around six twenty, and now I can look back and be like 20 seconds off of a one mile, like all out effort. Like that's no easy mark. Like, uh, you know, back then I had no, no way to perceive whether that was realistic or impossible, right? Because that's one of the most difficult things, even as adult human beings is like, what's a reasonable goal? What's an unreasonable goal? Um, so I set this goal to like, you know, be the fastest in my school and, and break this six minute mark in PE and in the final PE mile as a, as an eighth grader, I can still remember hearing as I crossed the finish line, leaned across, uh, hearing five at the front of, and it ended up being a five fifty seven. but hearing that five, and that was the only sound that mattered, right? That that five, like, ah, yes. And just flopping into the grass, just barrel rolling into the grass and laying there just, you know, in like the worst pain I'd been, been in at, at, to that point in my life, really, you know, just a one mile run lights your body on fire when you're going all out, but just feeling that, that pain side by side with a deep sense of satisfaction over what I'd done. And that like solidified this goal setting mindset, um, in me as a kid, I'm like, okay, I want to, I want to run in varsity on varsity in high school. And then from there, it was like, I want to make it state. And from there, it's like, I want to make it onto a college team. And, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm honing my ability to perceive my own, like what's possible for me. Cause mm. initially I was like, I want to break my high school record in the 1500 and like had to realize over time, like, Oh, that's like, I don't have, that caliber of just pure running talent, even if I put the work in and put in the training hours and train year round, like that's a mark I'm not going to touch. And like having that first like knock, you know, like that's a hard knock when you realize like, Oh, I'm not capable of everything I set my mind to, but then being able to, instead of giving up, like honing in, like, well, what is possible and what do I still want to do anyways? And had the dream of like, I want to get a college scholarship, even if it's a minimum college scholarship to run, I want to quote unquote, get paid to run was yep. kind of the, the humorous thought in my mind. Like, wouldn't it be cool if, yep. and you know, marketed myself really well to a, co- a couple college teams and then kind of played the coaches offers against each other to get a little bit better <laughs> offer from the school I actually wanted. Um, like I was, you know, nowadays it's totally normal for athletes yep. to submit videos of them, you know, them in their athletic endeavors at the time though, like coaches hadn't gotten inundated with that stuff yet. So I was kind of on the front edge and managed to get myself, you know, a foot through the door and got myself onto a team and then had to pay the consequences of having gotten myself onto a team where everybody was a much higher caliber runner than me. And I had to 
I had to fight tooth and nail just to stay on that team and like not lose my scholarship. Um, and that was a really like foundational experience, right? That was like the fiery crucible I had to go through. I can remember one, one training practice where the coach was having us report our heart rates because he was wanting them to like reach a certain point and then drop to a certain point before we started the next repeat, which is common with, with this type of practice. And he's, he's rattling off my, my team's, you know, teammates names search uh 134 uh snell 129 uh beeson 136 uh hardrath 179 don't worry about it coach let's just go <laughs> uh, so i'm just like way outgunned by these guys like i'm clearly way overreaching just every single day to just be on the team and, you know, had to go through that fiery crucible for four years. And, you know, toward the end of it ended up like turning around, like, okay, guys, I, I'm never going to race as fast as some of you, but that means you damn well better not let me be beating you in practice. Cause I'm going to show up and I'm going to be here every practice and I'm going right. to be all in. And if I'm ahead of you, you're doing something wrong and ended up getting, getting voted most inspirational on my team, my senior year, because of just like falling into that role. Like, Hey, it's like, I'm going to show up whether it's, if it's raining sideways while we try to go attack hill repeats on a muddy hillside, like I'm showing up, I'm getting stoked on that. Like we're making it happen. So you guys better show up too. flew through that part of life. Um, had an amazing experience, um, transitioned up to the marathon right after college then also jumped into, I biked across the United States when I graduated uh, university as kind of like a, one of those things where it's like, oh, well, I guess the best way to frame it is if you would ask me what my greatest fear was as I was mm -hmm. graduating college, it was this like deep visceral fear of I'm going to wake up 30 years from now and I'm going to wonder what the hell I did with my life, right? Like, oh yeah, it was over. Playtime is over. Like, I'm going to go into a career and if I don't pay attention, like, I'll just wake up and I'll be old and it'll be over. Um, and so, like, this visceral fear motivated me. Like, <laughs> I'm going to bike across. Like, I got to get out on this adventure. And the idea had entered my head when uh, I bought a bike because I was going to do a triathlon. Um, so let's talk about that for just a quick minute. Like, so you're in Oregon, right? You're yep. in Oregon as a kid too. And during this time, so Correct. What, what's your what, uh, biking, biking across the country? What's your, what's your de designated route? Like, are you trying to get to like, like the, the Southern tip of Florida or are you trying to go up top and North? Cause I mean, what you're going to be seeing throughout that time frame is going to vary a little bit. What was, what was your route there? We ended up going from a little town, a little ocean town called Ocean Shores, Washington. Um, in, if you threw a dart in the state of Washington, and right between Seattle and Portland, and you yep. hit the coast, you basically hit Ocean Shores. And we rode a combination of highways 12 and highway 2 all basically all the way across the country up there. Uh, you know, at, at one point, I think we were all of 10 miles away from the border with Canada on that highway. Okay. Um, and finished just across the bay from New York, New York. Um, cool. So yeah, wild journey. I think it was 50 days, 43 days of riding, seven days of goofing off um, nice. is what we did. And then we all had to come back and start real life with a job and all that stuff. But you don't, don't you think though that, I mean, I've had these conversations with other people, like that's really what uh, Americans are missing out on. I think not enough, oh, man. not enough Americans, uh, American kids as they get done with college, like have that mindset. 
to be like, you know what, I need to do this, right? It, pretty much like you said, it's like, I'm going to get done with college. I got to start a career. Here we go, right? So that kind of sets the stage to what you're getting, you know, doing now. So that's kind of cool that you had that mindset of like, I need to live life while I can before I have a career and get stuck in this play. And that's kind of what I wish more American, you know, college kids had the opportunity to, to think about doing, you know? Yeah, no. And I mean, you, you think about it, it's like a journey like that, you know, I, one of the ways I think about it now is like, what an amazing way to actually go visit the country oh, and like God, intimately yeah. experience the country you grew up in. Right. Yeah. You want to say America is a great country. It's like, well, what do you mean by that? You know, like, have you even bothered to go around and experience it a bit before you make that call? Mm-hmm. Um, and biking across, you want to talk about an intimate experience with what the terrain is like, with what the weather is like, with what the people are like, mm-hmm go pedal a bike across the country and then even better do it for a cause because then you're going to interact with people as you go yep. and you're going to see how, how the people of this country in various places react to a, a grand undertaking, a grand adventure and, you know, a cause, you know, something you believe in and, and mm-hmm. doing something big for that cause. Um, and I think it redefines your whole perception of humanity and how, how life works and how adventure works and sort of your faith in humanity. Yeah. Um, yeah, redefining experiences. And so I'm super glad I did it. And I do think it set the stage for me to have a sense that when you're willing to go all in on, on an adventure, and here's another crazy, crazy part with this trip, right? That kind of drives this point home. We, I went with one other friend from college and then his wife went with us as well. Um, she got sick right before we left. So she ended up driving a support car so we could light bike what's referred to as light biking. In other words, mm-hmm. we didn't have to like have our panniers and yep. you know sleeping bags and all that. So we're going across, we're doing this. We, we would base, I think there's only one or two nights where we had a place prearranged every other night for the 50 day trip. We did not know where we were going to be sleeping that night. And we would just call ahead to churches and organizations in a town that was roughly the right amount of distance that we thought we could bike it that day and be like, this is what we're doing. This is the adventure on, this is the cause. Here's our website could we sleep on your pews or in your Sunday school or someone at the church or, uh, you know, a campground, da, da, da. Every night we ended up with a place to stay. See, that's amazing. Right. Like you want to talk about redefine your perceptions of humanity, go, go like leave it out. And we were willing to just like sleep in the car or sleep in a ditch in a sleeping bag. Like we were willing to do that, but we never ended up having to a single time, a whole different perception about how humanity works when you go do something like that. So, yeah definitely set the stage for believing that big adventures were possible. Um, and that it was possible to, to rally people around an idea. Yeah. So did, um, so what year was that that you, you did bike across America? That would have been 2011. 2011. When I I graduated. Yeah. Okay. So did bike, having that much biking experience at that point now, is that what kind of got you on the road to maybe like trying out some triathlons and absolutely. So yeah, the bike trip, I fell in love with biking. I sort of realized like, I have a lot more potential with this than I ever did as a runner. Mm-hmm. I just fell in love with running first because I'm kind of short and stocky, thicker, more muscular built, uh, thick legs that can drive a big old fat gear on a bicycle, um, which don't serve you very well when you're trying to glide and float as a runner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got on a bike and I could just instantly just mash the big gear and hit crazy high speeds. And so I was like, all right, I need to, I need to pursue this a little bit. And of course, you know, the next natural extension of, well, I know I can run and I know I can bike. 
I better sign up for a triathlon. Like I said, I was going to do in college. And what do you do when you're going to sign up for a triathlon? You jump right into a full Ironman Uh, (laughs) and get this. I couldn't swim. I couldn't swim more than three lengths of a swimming pool when I like paid the I forget what it was at the time, like $600, uh, for this, this event. And it's a (laughs) 2.4 mile open water swim. Um, and it's like, all right, now I have motivation to learn how to swim. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that was the, the, the impetus to jump across to triathlon, jumped into Ironmans and half Ironmans, um, chased that with a huge passion for, from 2012 through to, uh, 2015 ended up qualifying for the 70.3, the half Ironman world championships for both 2014 and 2015. Mm-hmm. And then at the beginning of 2015, uh, rolled my car over, got ejected from the vehicle, um, should have died, uh, shredded the LCL and ACL of my right knee, broke my shoulder in two places, broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, put internal contusions throughout a lot of my internal organs. Um, yeah. One doctor told me if you were a typical 40 year old male, you know, in this country, you probably would have suffocated on the side of the road, um, waiting for the ambulance. Another one, uh, when I brought up my passion for moving my body and chasing these, you know, these dreams and goals and triathlon, um, just said, yeah, you're probably going to let that part of your life go and walked out of the room. Um, needless needless to say, he didn't stay my doctor very long. Um, (laughs) but yeah, like, like basically everything. And, you know, since I started at such a young age, like this is ingrained as a part of identity. Right. And, and, and ingrained as like a major form of my coping mechanisms. Like I would go on rage runs in college when, you know, crap would go sideways with friends. I would take off out the door at like (laughs) sub six minute mile pace and basically just rage run until, and about, I always found that about the time I couldn't hold the ridiculous pace anymore. I also no longer had the energy to be angry and then I could just turn around and jog it back to the school and be in a calm state of mind to go, okay, this is what I did wrong. And this is where I need to set boundaries that this was their mistake. And I'm not going to like apologize for it. And like, da da da. And this is how we'll probably end up resolving it. And by the time I got back, usually I had a reasonable solution to the problem. So it was like a major part of how I handled my life, right. Was I would Mm -hmm. use physical movement to, to cope with emotions Um, And then all of my friend group, like when you're training for Ironman, anybody that's done that knows you're putting in ridiculous amounts of training hours. So I had swim friends, I had bike friends and I had running friends and that was it. So suddenly I went from having a really healthy social network to, to having zero friends I could access because they were all still out doing awesome shit. And so, yeah, it was kind of this crazy life experience where I went from having healthy social life to not having any, I lost my coping mechanisms. I became trapped in a body that previously felt invincible. Um, you know, just the, the Sunday before the accident happened, I went for a 140 mile bike ride and got off and went for like a 10 mile run and felt great. Like I, it was like kind of this thing, like, well, maybe I'll go play Frisbee with my friends later. Like it just felt unreal how strong I was getting. And then went from that, I think the accident happened on a Tuesday. So Wednesday, I couldn't get my own drink of water. Like I'm thirsty. I can't get, I can't do anything about it. So how, and how bad does, cause I mean, if that was, if that was me in that situation, having all that, this, the social circles, the activities, I mean, how bad does depression set in at that point? Right. Cause you don't, you lose everything that you've known up to that point. Right. And it's, it's gotta be so tough mentally just trying to figure out the next, the next step in that. There were, there were definitely some scream into the pillow moments. Um, you know, um, 
that old poem, um, do not go calmly into the, into the night, you know, rage, rage, rage. Like it was, it was being in touch and understanding that that was still a part of me. And right. This is, this is part of the problem with the language we use in our country around identity. We say things like I am a runner. It's like, well, mm-hmm. no, ru- running is what you do. And you have reasons that are more fundamental to who you are that are that you choose to express through running. And I think that's an important distinction. It seems like it's semantic, but I think it's important because if you say I am a runner and then something stops you from running, suddenly you have to be in this crisis of like, oh, well, who am I? And what do I do now? And da, da, da. What I came to realize through this process, and I kind of knew it before, but this really like solidified my understanding is I'm a driven, passionate person. I'm a playful, explorative person. And the way I express that is through the medium of running. And, and you know, it allow, having that sort of a mindset about it is, you know, if I lost my legs in a car accident tomorrow, I would come out of, you know, whatever, you know, trance or like a coma or, you know, if they put me under and then like brought me back, like, okay, you lost your legs. It'd be like, whoa, that's, that's gnarly. I need, I need, hand me a device. I need to buy a racing wheelchair. Yeah. Right. Like it would be that quick of a decision to know, like, I just need another expression. And so I think when you come to understand and like do a little bit more parsing on identity, it allows you to navigate those things that would be really big setbacks much more quickly because because you keep that liminal space, that confused space a lot shorter because, you know, the thing that's going to align with your identity and align with your values uh, much, much quicker instead of sort of feeling like you're lost. So then what, uh, what's your time frame now is, you know, you've, you, you got into the accident, you've, you're out of commission for when it comes to running and triathlons. And, um, when do you start picking up the pieces and being like, okay, let's go out for a walk. Let's do this. And how does, how did that change? Like your, your goal mindset or your ambitions? Like how did, how does that adjust in this whole entire process? Oh man. Uh, great question. So two, two things with that. Um, one, I had to take on a second part to like getting through this, right. Is I had to take on this mindset. I, I, to this day still use this phrase. I say in my former life, when I refer to anything I accomplished prior to the car accident, and I'll say it with a smile, a joke on my face, right? Like in my former life, ha ha ha. But it keeps a distinction in my head, right? Like I'm not living in that guy's shadow. Right. Right. Like everything I'm going to celebrate. And at first it was essential, right? Cause I had to get back in a mindset where I was capable of running six thirty mile pace for an entire marathon prior to the car accident. And after the car accident, I could hardly hobble a mile at 14 minute mile pace. Right. And it was painful every step. And especially like initially in the initial like bit after the car accident and the surgery. So like, it was essential for me to be able to like, let go of that and be like, all right, I'm going to, th- I'm going to get back in the same goal setting mindset, but I'm going to celebrate all of the things I've started taking for granted, right? Going back to being like, oh, this is as much as I've ever bent my knee. Like how many of us just take for granted that we can bend our knee through a healthy (laughs) range of motion? It's like, no, no, no. I'm going to celebrate every little gain I get, every degree of range of motion I get back in the knee. I'm going to, I'm going to celebrate the, the most I've stood during a day without it swelling up. I'm going to celebrate that I was able to hobble through a mile today. I'm going to celebrate that I got in the pool and swam and my ribs didn't crackle with every stroke. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like 
noticing all those little things, those little gains and, and celebrating them, being stoked on them. Cause that's really the process, right? That's how we arrive anywhere. And a lot of us forget this because we go through it when we're a kid where we don't have a strong sense of self-judgment yet. Yep. Um, instead, we're just playing without any care of what anyone else thinks. And that's where we get a lot of our practice that allows us to pick things up as adults. So it's kind of like being abiding the like, okay, I suck, but like, I'm not going to think about that. Instead, I'm just going to be in love with the process and I'm going to celebrate the process because really, yeah, that's one thing that this accident drove home is all we ever have is the process at any moment, a snap of the fingers and anything we think we are, we think we've accomplished is just gone. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got in this mindset of with my PT, with my fitness, with everything, just, I'm going to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And what is the next goal and the next goal, which is the same journey I'd already lived just now I was slower and it was even more mm-hmm. painful than before. So it's like, okay, slower, more painful version of the same thing. But if I want the results, I've got to be willing to embrace the suffering. Suffering is the way, right? That's like a stoicism thing. Um, I think, I think it's true. I think discomfort is the path. And a lot of us want to shy away from that discomfort, but it's the exact thing. It's the exact antidote to, to being stuck in whatever it is we're facing yeah. with the setback in life. So I leaned into that discomfort and actually this is, I don't, I don't often share this story because you know, I don't want to advise people to go against their doctors completely. But one of the things I did that just I could tell it was very important to my psyche was I decided that I was going to work my butt off to still fly internationally and go on my trip to my 2015 world championship in September. So car okay. accident happens beginning of May, Sep- end of September is the world championships for the 70.3 in Austria that year, 2015, kind of this deep feeling of, I may never like being real with myself because of the damage to my lungs, the damage to my knee. I may never qualify for a world championship again. I'm going to go get that damn finishers medal. <laughs> I, like regardless of how much suffering happens to make it, okay. I'm going to get from that starting line to that finish line. And so I do do a bunch of work. Like my knees still swollen, like a grapefruit at this point. Right. Like I go over there. I, I actually do decent on the swim and I swim probably within three or four minutes of my, my best ever swim time. Okay. Um, wow. And then I get on the bike and I bike like the 270th fastest time out of everybody there out of the like 3000 competitors. Um, so I bike super strong and I had a, one of those power meters for my bike that showed how much power was coming out of each leg. And it was 70, 30. So one of my legs was doing 70, yeah. 70% <laughs> of the power output. Um, and bike this great bike time. Like I said, I discovered I had a lot more potential on the bike. Um, and then got off and literally limp and walked and occasionally like hobble limp jogged every step of that half marathon, like wow. you know, zero running strides, just hobbled my way all the way to the finish line. And people came by like thinking I was cramping up, like you got this, like way to go. Like, don't give up. It's like, uh, yeah, no, this is literally as fast as my body. Can go. This isn't, this isn't I'm cramping. And so I'm slowing down. It's like, this is top speed. <laughs> um, so went through and I actually have the, I have the metal hanging on the wall behind me. People listening to this probably can't, can't see the video, but it's hanging on the wall behind me. And it has a lot of meaning to me sort of reclaiming that personal power and that independence and that, like, I can still go do the things I want to do. And that was an important moment for me and kind of set the stage like, okay, 
Like I might not, I might not be able to perform that well in these like high end cardio stuff, but I'm at least going to find something I can do. And, and something I'd taken up at the same time, kind of parallel with this was just kind of like hiking up and down hills. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I didn't, I didn't have the range of motion to run. Like I've alluded to many times, but when you walk up and down fairly steep hills, you never really lock your knee out all the way. You always kind of are keeping yep. it in your quads. Exactly. So I was like, well, I can walk up and down hills. So I'll just do hills to like stay fit and hills led to mountains. And you're like over this timeline of a couple of years, like mountains led to bigger mountains. And pretty soon I'm doing mountains that have technical summits. Um, so I'm having to pick up rock climbing skills. So it's like, okay, I guess I'm a rock <laughs> climber now. And I had to, you know, to, to bring up that same thing where we as adults tend to not be willing to abide sucking. Like uh, one of my favorite <laughs> quotes is be willing, be brave enough to suck at something new. Um, and that's what it was. I showed up at this climbing gym to be like, okay, I got to become a climber now. Cause these mountains have some awesome, amazing summits. And I don't want to have to not go to the summit. Cause I don't have the skills. Right. So I started going to a climbing gym and I was literally the period worst period person there period. Um, <laughs> like little kids there were climbing better than me. Cause you know, up until this point, I'd done no upper body. Like I'd intentionally let my upper body atrophy to be light for biking and light for running, yeah. you, know, you know, just enough upper body to swim. And so I come in there and like, I'm not able like people are like, Oh, grab that, grab that jug up there. And I'd reach up to grab the hold. And it's like, I can't hold on to that. You call it a jug, which is their, ter <laughs> their term for an easy hold. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm like falling off the stuff they consider jugs. Um, and anyways, have to just abide, be, like I suck at this. I'm used to being good at the things I do. And I'm literally the worst person here and just had to like abide that for months and months and months and months and months. Well, that's, that's the problem with, with rock climbing. You're not used to it. It's, it's yes, it's your arm strength, but man, the grip alone, the grip, uh, the footwork, the body positions. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm six, five, two So when I go to the gym, I'm definitely the biggest guy there at the gym. But it's kind of one of those things like I've got the strength to grab some of that stuff. But, man, I, I just burn out really fast because the weight, <laughs> the weight that I carry going up. So it's, it's a little tough, but I, I can only imagine trying to shift it from that athletic mindset of a triathlete where there's it's all leg power to now it's rock climbing and even even doing the hiking stuff. I mean, the hiking stuff is all lower body for the most part, right? So you're yeah. having to completely re-engage that upper body strength altogether. Well, and just, and learning, learning the coordination of moving oh, yeah. three-dimensional space instead yeah. of just two-dimensional space, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a whole new learning experience. And I can still remember the first day that someone, I climbed a route and someone's like, oh, that was really good. Could you show me how to do that? And it was kind of this like, oh my God, I've arrived. Like someone actually thinks I'm, <laughs> I'm good at this. Someone actually thinks I know what I'm doing. Like, this is awesome. I put the time in, like I finally made it. I made it past the you suck. Yeah, like a huge journey with that. And so, you know, again, over the course of like rehabbing the knee and just putting in the work, like a lot of different timelines going on at the same time here. And also over the course of this, like I become a mountain guide because I just fall in love with being in the mountains and like, I, you know, the teacher in me, I'm a school teacher. Um, I forget if you said that at the beginning of this, but I'm a school teacher. So I teach kids. There's that, that's a true passion. It's not just a, a thing I do to pay the bills. And so I wanted to teach people in the mountains. So I became a mountain guide as well. And, you know, got to hone my skills even more being in the mountains and at the same time, finally running started to come back. Not like I used to, not like 6.30 pace for a marathon kind of running, but it's like I could run for 20 miles and my knee wasn't the size of a grapefruit at the end of it, mm -hmm. like that kind of running. Um, and so I was like, well, I really love climbing mountains. So I guess I'll just like lighten up my kit 
and take off and run and climb one peak. And if I feel good, I'll just run over and climb this other technical peak. And then if it's still going well, I'll go do a third technical peak in the same day. And maybe I'm the first person that's ever done these three in the same day. And then I discovered fastest known times where it's like, oh, this is basically what I'm already doing (laughs) and what I want to keep doing. And I get to, I get to go race other people and like challenge myself on some of the world's most beautiful routes and some of the most beautiful places that you can never host a race because you can't get a permit to go through the wilderness or national park. And so it's like, wait a minute, this is, this is a whole different level of, of play out here. And I can find these routes that involve technical skills like glacier travel and technical skills like rock climbing and do them in this unique way where I'm going to go light and fast and blend my skills um, and use my deep knowledge of, you know, endurance sport uh, to, to like bring that to bear on like sort of this rock climbing process. Um, and yeah, I just fell in love with chasing FKTs. And then the idea popped in my head. It's like, well, why don't I just do a hundred of them? Because if I do a hundred of them, like that's a hundred memories, even if nobody else cares, that's a hundred amazing memories oh, God, that yeah. I have doing the stuff I want to do. My God. So what was your, what was your very first FKT? My very first FKT where I knew what I was doing. Uh, I, I actually, I won some prize money at a marathon where nobody else fast showed up. One of those ones where you like sign up and you're like, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to try to hit such and such time. And then you realize that there's only like two or three people up there in the front with you because nobody else fast showed up. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm kind of in this. (laughs) And then, and then your whole race plan goes out the window where it's like, no, now it's just to win. Um, (laughs) And so I ended up winning this race and getting a little prize money. I didn't even know there was prize money because I assumed I'd get like. 20th or 30th place or something. So with that prize money, I'm like, I'm going to fly to Hawaii on a weekend and go do Mauna Kea from the ocean. And so my first ever FKT was Mauna Kea Sea to Summit um, FKT, uh, which is an awesome route. Mauna Kea is like 13,700 feet. So you go all the way from the ocean and run all the way up there. Um, so that was my first one ever. And it was an awesome trip. Like had to do it totally dirt bags style. Cause I had no budget. So I like slept on beaches. I think one night I slept on the roof of, uh, uh, a warehouse. I just like saw like a, a fence and a storm drain that I was like, Oh, that'd be easy to climb up. And then I just flipped up onto the roof and pulled my sleeping bag out and slept up there. Um, <laughs> so like this total dirt bag trip and went and broke it, went and went and set the yeah FKT up on that and had an awesome experience. So yeah. Then from there, just kept chasing more. <laughs> yeah. And then how, so you get that first FKT, like how often now are you, uh, at this point in time, uh, how often are you going out and doing these FKTs and, and where are you traveling at? Are you trying to do specific areas first to just kind of do it or just like, Hey, I have time to go out and you know go to the East coast or I have time to go and do somewhere like anywhere else in the country. Like what's the time frame that you're maneuvering around now? Absolutely. So my major, my major adventure windows are the four breaks of being a school teacher. Obviously the, mm-hmm. the obvious big one is summer vacation, which is, uh, about 80 days long. And that's where I fit my biggest projects. And then mm-hmm. I have a spring break. That's 10 days long. I have a Thanksgiving break. That's 10 days long. And I have a Christmas break. That's two weeks long. Um, so it kind of gives me a chance in every season to escape to a different place that the weather's right. And uh, then I do a lot of weekend warrioring stuff as well. In 2020, I did 60 different FKTs. Yeah. Because there was nothing else you could do. There's nothing else you could do. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, it ended up that with school getting shut down, I ended up with some extra time where 
I'd already like launched on my spring break trip when they first shut everything down. And it's like, well, I'm already out here in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't help anyone for me to just go home. Um, so I'll just stay out here in the middle of nowhere until they tell me I need to be back at work. And so, yeah, just lots of situations right like that, where I just was like living in the middle of nowhere out of a vehicle, just doing FKTs. Um, cause it was like all you could do. Um, so yeah, I had a, yeah. had a heyday in 2020. And I think maybe one person has surpassed that as far as most FKTs in a year, but at the time it was the most FKTs anybody had done in a year. So that's, so that's part of the, the secret sauce here a little bit is you've got these windows you have to work with them, <laughs> right? You've got 80 days in the summertime. You got 10 days here, 10 days there. So it's not this, oh yeah, I've got six months off. I'm just going to roll with it and, and go. I mean, that's kind of got to be kind of nice. The fact that you have that window where you're like, okay, I need to, this is my, my, goal to, to get this in during this time frame, right? So it's kind of got to play into the, into the mentality of it just a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So you, you come up, you, you get into 2021 and you're looking for your hundredth, uh, hundred FKT. How did, how did you get into looking at the, doing the boulders list, the, the hundred highest peaks in Washington? How did that idea come, come around? Well, the first time it actually, the first touch I had with it was I, I just happened to come across a thread of mountaineers in, uh, Seattle based Washington based mountaineers kind of debating uh, a person had proposed, well, you know, Colorado has its Nolan's 14. That's kind of its iconic representative, um, race across this single mountain range, Mm -hmm. um, like Colorado sort of ultra mountain experience. And so they said, well, what is the equivalent in, Washington and a bunch of people threw out a bunch of different ideas of what it was or was it what it wasn't. Uh, but one person threw out, well, we have the Bulgers list and, uh, you know, posted the current record, which was 410 days. And like, you know, I saw some people kind of go back and forth on that sub thread and one person's like, oh yeah, that record's going to stand for a long time. And I just remember like looking at it and being like, well, that's not even a, like a, a peak a day. Like I know, like based on what I've seen other places, like, and I, I wasn't applying it to myself. I wasn't like, I'm going to beat that. I was just like, no, some athlete, like that's going to get beaten. And I didn't say that. I just thought it and like moved on and it like fell to the back of my mind. So anyways, fast forward up to, as I'm, I'm approaching, I forget what it was that put it back in front of me, but it came back across my radar. Maybe I was just poking around on the FKT website and randomly clicked the dot on the map that popped up as the Bulgers. And you know, the I was looking for FKT 100 and it's 100 peaks. And I kind of looked into it a little more. It's like, these are technical peaks with glacier travel with fifth class summit pinnacles that you've got to be able to make fifth class rock climbing moves confidently Mm -hmm. on. And it's, it's that over and over and over again, like only four of the peaks, if you're generous, if you're generous, only four of the peaks have trails to the top. Um, Really, truly like without like kind of broken intermittent trail. If you just want to say a trail that goes all the way to the top, it's two of the peaks. So it's like, this isn't just, you know, some people like compare Colorado centennials and the Bulgers. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, the Colorado centennials are not the same they're, they're two very different things. I mean, Washington is a temperate rainforest. Um, that's what you're bushwhacking through. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just a different level of backcountry experience to get to these peaks. And it just like all of this started, started like soaking in, right? It's like, this is going to be an absolutely wild adventure. That's going to put every skill I have to its full test. And it's going to be just this ongoing giant question mark of, can it be done? 
and can I do it in my school summer? And <laughs> like, that was, that was, that was the question I was answering. Like, can it be climbed in a season? Can I do it in my school summer? And that's what I set out to do. So yeah, I started planning in like December prior to when I started. So about six months worth of planning, uh, getting on calls with mountaineers, uh, getting on calls with the previous record holder, getting on calls wow. with people who'd climbed in the area, like figuring out which peaks could be linked up and what the most efficient linkups were, what the bailout options were, which routes you want to avoid, um, what areas of the bushwhacking you don't want to go into because you'll be stuck in there for days. Right. Um, just like all these different details, you know, so months of like figuring out like do's and don'ts. Um, and then also planning around previous fire closures and then planning the whole trip based on risk and like sorting that like, okay, which is the greater risk wide open crevasses that I can fall into, um, or potentially find them impassable or a fire closure. And I decided to rank fire closures like above, like I'm willing to take the risk on the snow and ice and rely, mm -hmm. like lean into my technical capabilities in the, in that terrain to find a way across something that most people might not be willing to cross and avoid fire, fire closures and fires. Since that's like a catastrophic, like, well, there's, you can't just choose to be tough enough to walk through fire. And plus for setting a record, you have to honor land closures. So even if the fire wasn't in the area, if they closed a piece of land, technically the record wouldn't stand if I violated that land closure and went for the summit. So it was like all of this as part of the, the logistics and planning. And so I decided to start on the east side, which is the drier side of the state that has worse fire risk. And I swept all the way from north to south on the furthest east ranges, then came back up, swept up through the center, and then finished on the volcanoes to the to the west as my finishing kind of victory lap. So let's let's talk a little bit about because there's some people that are going to listen in on this podcast that don't really understand the FKTs to how how that works, right? So and and I'm I'm still learning myself and how this all plays out. How do you one? How does somebody track your pace? Right. And how do you go in to say, okay, I started on this date. I, I, I summited this peak. I got done and finished on this day. Like what's the progress as far as from point A to point B and, and tracking how many summits you actually did? Like what's, what's that like? Absolutely. Great question. Um, so FKTs, yeah, like they can only exist in the modern era. I mean, they were word of mouth, you know, in places like where fell running was popular with like the Bob Graham mm -hmm. round and stuff like yeah. that. Right. Like just, it used to be just word of mouth. Like I did this, this fast. And that's, you know, sort of the, the history and origins of all FKTs really is that we like to do that as humans, even just in small circles of friends. We've always <laughs> yeah. loved to be like, Oh, well I climbed such and such mountain, such and such fast. Um, but nowadays the modern era, the reason it's, I think in this time has spread so wide so fast is we now have GPSs on our, on our wrists. Right. We, we now have cell phones that geo stamp every photo we take with our exact location and the time we were there. So we have these methods that all of us walk around with of, of accurately tracking where we were. So as far as how I did it, I used three forms of verification. I used uh, that I tracked every single step I took with my GPS watch. I had the uh, Coros Vertex and, you know, great battery life. So I was able to, you know, recharge it after a really long push out and track every single step in normal GPS mode. So I had that as one form. I took photos on every summit you know, geotagged photos. Um, so it showed that it was me who had walked my watch all the way to the top of that peak. Yep. Um, and then I also sent a live with a spot tracker. I sent a live check-in from every single summit. 
so three forms of verification that show like, okay, he was actually out doing this. Um, you know, most of them aren't this complex where you have to have this level of detail to get a hundred, right. you know, nailed a hundred peaks. And also yeah. I had to record where I, which trailhead I started at. Um, cause if you watch say like the 14 peaks documentary, he started his time yeah. from the, when he was at the top, top of the first of the mountain, mountain yeah. to the time he was at the top of the last mountain. Right. In the FKT world, it, the tradition is trailhead to trailhead. Okay. So I, I started my time when I took the first step away from the first trailhead and my time ended when I took the last step into the final trailhead. Okay. Now, does somebody wants to try and get, you know, an, a, the FKT after you or goes out and does their own, like, do they have to start from the same location or is it just a, a simple, like, oh, you can go the reverse way? Absolutely. So, and that's, this is the beautiful part about FKTs, right? Because if you try to conceptualize it as a Strava segment, it's like, that doesn't quite work, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, FKTs on trail systems are really easy, right? Because you're going to start at one end, one end or the other. If the trail's a loop, you're going to go one way or the other. Like the Wonderland Trail has an FKT. You can go either way. Um, with something like this, this is a peak baggers style FKT. And you could never do a Strava segment for it because there's so many different routes you can climb each mountain by. And there's so many different trailheads you can start and finish at. So basically it's left up to the next attempter. They could choose to start in a totally okay. different place than me. They could do the peaks in a totally different order. Um, and I think that's something that adds a level of uniqueness and adds a level of, it's almost like a mental game as well, right? Like you have to think through the right, the right season. You have to think through the right tactics that play to your strengths versus your weaknesses. Like, oh, maybe I can take a shorter, more technical way up the mountain because I'm really efficient on technical terrain and I can beat the person that runs really fast. But then the, some faster runner comes along and goes, oh, I can run up this, you know, third class way or second class way and make it faster than that person who climbed the direct way. Um, so it's like this, this game of what are my strengths and what will be the fastest and what options yeah. exist. And I think that that's something that fits in some of these mountain style and peak beggar style FKTs that you really can't, you don't get to play that sort of a game anywhere else. And so I kind of yeah. love that aspect where it's like, oh, you've got to use your mind and your skill set and body all right. together. Well, just the, the strategy, I mean, it just has got to just let alone has to take up half of the half the planning process of okay i'm better at this than that i can take this course because it's that's what i love about like even you talk about the two 200 mile races and stuff it's all about the strategy and then like when do you run when do you walk when do you sleep you know it's kind of the same same thing here with the fkts it's kind of strategy just plays a huge part of it and i love to hear that when it comes to not all fkts are created equal. I mean, some you've got complete trails, uh, I guess, across, right? And as you're saying with, with the hundred peaks, you know, there's glacier climbing, there's, you know, a little rock climbing, like you're, you're bushwhacking through some areas and stuff. Like, are you personally, are you looking for some of that stuff to, to do when you're going out on these FKTs? Is that oh, absolutely. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want an adventure. I want a challenge. That's, that's actually one of the things I talk about. Like how do you know, someone asked me, how do you what's your tactic for pushing through these big, long days, you know, where it takes you, uh, 11 hours, you know, one of the bushwhacks, it took 11 hours to cover 7.5 miles. Um, and it was like all out fight for your life, no sitting down, no breaks. Cause the mosquitoes were just way too insane. Like you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't stop even for a second. Yeah. Um, 
and just fight for your life for 11 and a half hours to cover seven and a half miles. Um, and like, that was one of the approaches. And then the next day we climbed three different mountains. How, how do I do that? It's like, well, I have things I'm looking forward to. Like I'm looking forward to that fifth class climbing. I'm looking forward to that uh, crevassed glacier that I get to, you know, make the delicate moves to get across. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to that route finding on a really like confusing route and figuring it out efficiently. Um, so it's like, I have these things out there that I'm like, okay, cool. Like what, why am I out slogging today? Like I'm going to slog till I get to this thing. And then that's going to be some fun. So, so it's like, yeah, stuff to look forward to. Yeah. So let's talk mountaineering a little bit. Like how do you, I, you said you're a mountain guide, obviously that's where some of the mountaineering comes in. Um, like how, how much does that play into a lot of these FKTs? I mean, do you like how much, like, what's the percentage of the mountaineering versus like rock climbing? Do you, would you think, or is it again, and all FKTs are not created equal. So it's kind of, I purposely choose like whether it's a route I create or a route I repeat, I almost always choose routes that have technical aspects, whether it is uh, difficult route finding off trail, or I really love stuff that includes rock climbing or any movement on rock. I've also done some like slot Canyon FKTs because it's kind of the same thing, but going down instead of going up. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then obviously stuff that involves like extended glacier travel and making smart decisions at elevation while, while fatigued. I lean into that stuff because it's a skill set I have. It's a strength. Like if you line me up at some, you know, non-technical trail race, I guarantee you I will place less well than whatever it is you're <laughs> estimating right now. Um, I do not have great leg speed, especially not anymore, you know, since since the car accident. Like I was somewhat kind of fast before, like on a like low level, like an, an age grouper level. Um, and now I'm just not fast. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you put me out into a terrain where most people want to, you know, want to be roped in or aren't even willing to go with a rope. And because of the years of practice and and skill development and working on the mental game of it as well. um, I put very intentional effort into all those things. I'm able to move through terrain with no gear or protection in and feel calm and collected and confident that a lot of people just would come unglued. Um, And so I loved Of course, if I have that skill, I want to play to that skill, right? right? Like I want to choose something and, and it's not just to beat other people. Like that's the wrong framing. Really. What it is, is, when I'm out there putting all those skills together and, you know, my students ask me this, they're like, Oh, you don't, you don't have a fear of heights. It's like, no, I do have a fear of heights, but I've, what I've done is I've integrated that fear, that fear triggers focus. And that combination of fear and focus creates a heightened experience, right? We talk about the flow state. It's like the flow state on, on steroids, right? Um, I'll go out there and I'll run my way up and, you know, even just running, right? Like we, we all love it because it's soothing, it's calming. But when I pull onto those technical rock moves, complete silence in my mind, I feel the tension in my muscles. I, I see the distance to the next rock hold. I feel the grains of the rock under my fingertips. I feel the tension in my calf muscle as I stand on a small edge, like everything's silent except the experience. And for me, being an ADHD kid who couldn't sit still, where it's always a thousand noisy things. And even as an adult, like I still have a thousand noisy things going on in my head at all times. You know, like I think of five other stories I could be telling right now. When I'm on the rock making those movements, it's just silent. And that for me, that for me is 
therapy, right? Like that is, I'll come away from that experience. Just like, ah, oh, everything is right <laughs> with the world. It's all going to be okay. Um, and so for me, like that, that's the real experience. It's less about being competitive with others. It's like, that's secondary. I know I'm competitive with others because I'm capable of doing these things that a lot of people like can't bring themselves to do, or just don't have the skill set to do. But it, that's not really the reason why the reason why is because it creates that kind of experience for me to be out there doing this stuff. So when you're talking, when you started on the east east side of the state, kind of worked your way west. Um, what's the logistics look like? And this is where I like to get into the logistics of it. Like, what's your logistics look like from you know your nutrition along this along this time frame? And then how do you like is somebody meeting you up at a different point with the vehicle to to take you off to somewhere to, to sleep or you camping out? Like what's, how's that situation work as you go in? Cause obviously not every peak is also created equal. So you get up, <laughs> <laughs> right. So you're going to, it's going to be different every single time you, you go up one of these summits. Like how does the logistics kind of factor in and maneuver around as you're, as you're going West? Absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. And the answer to the question is a about as complex as you could possibly imagine, <laughs> right? However, however much you think it can be simplified, it probably can't be simplified that much. So there were peaks where I had to ride a boat for three hours to go into the back country for seven days oh. to pay, to tag nine different peaks, um, to then catch the boat on time to get the ride back out, um, <laughs> all without like revisiting your vehicle because oops, I forgot something. Um, and then there were other peaks where it was like, Oh yeah, I'll be back at the car in seven hours. Um, and I'll beg two peaks. Right. So it's, it's which one is which. And then also thinking about like periodization in your training, it's like, okay, mm -hmm. then how can I periodize some of these easier, harder peaks, both for their mental taxing nature, the sleep deprivation involved and like the efficiency of getting fuel back into my body, um, to like stagger them in a proper way that it's like, you know, 10 peaks in I'm blown up. Like, how do I keep that from happening? Right. Um, so like, you know, there's some science that goes into it too. Like kind of understanding like, okay, hard day, hard day, a little easier day. Hard, and it's like kind of funny for me to like think about, cause my easy days oftentimes had, uh, like, 12 plus miles with 8,000 plus feet of vert. Uh, like that's recovery day, but that's a lot less than a, you know, 25 plus mile day with 14,000 plus feet of elevation gain. Yeah. Um, so it's like, okay, that does, that does start to feel a little bit like a rest day. Um, especially, especially when you think of like peaks where it's like, oh, this one has a trail that goes 50% of the way up versus you're bushwhacking on the bottom half and then rock climbing the top half. Um, like that's a massive difference in power output and overall yeah. pace. Um, it, you know, like you don't have an appreciation for even a terribly built trail until you've bushwhacked through the middle of nowhere for a day. Like, like, <laughs> like there were times I celebrated when I got on an overgrown, like fallen trees across it trail, because just the degree of difference in how quickly you can move when you, when you don't have to question every single step because you have something to at least guide your, your mind. Like, Oh yeah, I can see the broken trail going through, through here, um, where you can kind of at least power your brain down that littlest bit and just follow something for a while. Um, like you don't have an appreciation of how much more efficient you are on any kind of a trail <laughs> until you've done true deep 
bushwhacking. (laughs) (laughs) And how many, so on a regular, you know, a a 12 mile, 8,000 foot climb, like how many calories you taken in during the day? Oh man, it was, you know, it was doing everything I could to stay at like while moving, staying at that 200 to 220 calories per hour, okay. um, which, you know, is basically about the maximum our bodies can absorb. Um, cause you know, you can't, you can't overdo it and then back your gut up either while you're out there. Um, so taking in, trying to take in whether uh, I did gnarly nutrition, their fuel to O product mixed in yep. with my water to make it easy to get electrolytes and easy to get calories. And then I, I broke my, my food down that basically covered most of my actual needed calories. Mm-hmm. And then I broke my other food down kind of for psychological benefit. Right. So I had food for fuel and then I have food for psychological boost. Um, and I think it's a great way to plan it when you're going to be in the deep back country, because you can like use them as rewards for yourself. Um, like, Oh, when I get to this peak, I'm going to have those Fritos and the three foods that the three food categories that I know I always want to have with me when I'm way out in the middle of nowhere, I want something sweet. Cause I do have a sweet tooth. Maybe it's Oreos one day. Maybe it's a Snickers bar or a bunch of Snickers, bar. I should have been sponsored by Snickers for this thing. I ate so many Snickers. almonds, <laughs> It's ridiculous. Um, and then I want something savory. Sometimes it was jerky. Sometimes it was salami. Um, sometimes it was, uh, like I'd get, you know, splurge and get like a fancy cheese or something, um, like a smoked cheese. So something with rich flavor and then something crunchy. So kind of a texture more than a flavor. Yeah. It could be sweet crunch, crunchy, or it could be Fritos. But I knew, I always knew like, even if I felt burned out on sweet, I would kind of crave something, you know, crunchy and salty or crave something savory. And that way I could always kind of keep both that psychological boon going like, oh, I can't wait to have a piece of salami. I could also like constantly be eating even when I didn't feel like like I was all burned out on sweet, I would still be eating and taking in calories. And then when I would get back to the van, it was basically like teenhood all over again, right? Like <laughs> clean out the, clean out the cupboards. I'm, I'm, I'm slabbing, I'm slathering Nutella on Oreos and eating them a row at a time. Um, sometimes a pack at a time. Uh, I'm, I'm doing, uh, ramen with bone broth protein mixed into the broth. I'm doing like just anything you can imagine. And just like one after the other, it's like, yeah, I'll have one of those and I'll have one of those and I'll have one of those and I'll have one of those. Just like max the gut out, go to bed, wake up the next day, repeat. (laughs) Wow. Just like, just gut bomb central when you get finished. (laughs) I don't know any, did you, do you end up taking any days off at all? During this whole entire time, or you just crushed it day in and day out? I took, I think over the course of the whole thing, I took one true like full day off rest day uh, because I'd gotten a bit sloppy on a technical traverse with some fifth class and was kind of like, like, whoa, that got serious. And I was not as precise as I wanted to be, like felt way out of it for a chunk of it. Like that's not, mm-hmm. I can't keep doing I can't keep going on in terrain like this in that kind of a state. So my crew, my crew actually urged like, let's take, let's take a day off now um, rather than risk you getting like seriously hurt. So I took a day off uh, for that reason, because I was going back into some, some serious terrain again, some consequent consequential terrain. Uh, There were a couple other days where due to logistical errors, like I lost a half day because of a fire that broke out and closed highway 20. So I had to drive for eight hours around. So I lost a half day there. Um, so you can't really call it a rest day, but I also wasn't 
out climbing. So lost some of that time and then had a couple other times where I could have climbed a peak that day, but I decided to just do the approach because kind of the same thing. It was a technical summit, uh, to make it to the top of, and I was feeling thrashed. So it was like, all right, approach today, summit tomorrow. Um, and then on with the rest of the traverse. So there were a few times where it's like, you know, you could call them weak spots, weak spots, on the record. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, man, if someone else can come along and have everything go so well, and also, yeah, right. also correct those weak spots, like awesome. They deserve it. Good for them. <laughs> you mentioned crew. Um, what kind of support are you out there? Because you're, there's definitely spots where you're, your client, you're actually going with people at the, you know, throughout the entire way. Like, are they, how many people stayed with you the entire time or how are, are people jumping in to different peaks with you? Like how does, how does that work with your crew? Awesome. Yeah. Great question. I rotated through, let me see here. Uh, I think I rotated through three different climbing partners. Um, one of them climbed and I actually hadn't even met him before the first day we did. He did the peak number one with me, um, did the whole first day with me and we hadn't even met prior to that, but it was kind of like a less serious day. The peaks were pretty Mm non-technical. Um, it was just a long push. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And like, kind of thinking like, okay, if he gets tired, he can just double back and go to his car. Um, like no big deal. No harm, no foul. We ended up hitting it off. He was a great kid, super strong, like 21 years old, but super strong, strong climber, great route finder, great mountaineer. Um, so it was like, he was like, I want to keep doing these with you. I'm like, awesome. As much as it's possible, let's do it. So yeah, he ended up climbing 66 of them. And here's the really cool part. His name's Nathan Longhurst. I say it because people should watch out for him. And he ended up becoming the youngest person to ever finish the whole list. Cause he climbed 66 of them with me and then redid some of them. He had already climbed and finished up the ones he hadn't done. Wow. And he also, he, he ended up finishing in a single season, second person ever to do it. Cause he finished three days after me. Um, and has his time was 94 days. So he would have quartered the previous record. Yeah. No um, so yeah, super cool side thing. And like, I'm trying to get him set up with some opportunities cause he might go after a really big peak list this next year. Cause he's like a full on dirt bag, like no job. So he has like unlimited <laughs> time. So I'm trying to get him some support cause he's going to take on a huge thing down in California, Okay, uh, but super cool kid anyways. Uh, and then Alex King, another FKT guy climbed with me and Sean O'Rourke, who's kind of like a legend, um, in like the Sierras and some other places he's written a guidebook on climbing the California 14ers and stuff. Um, those guys all partnered with me on different days. And then my girlfriend, Ashley Winchester, uh, she actually does her own podcast women of the wild. Um, she drove and did a ton of the support and you, we, you mentioned like how logistically challenged challenging is this? Well, for some of these peaks, it made sense for like an optimal run through to go into the backcountry and then just not come out of the backcountry to just keep going to the next peak, to the next peak, to the next right. peak. But to do that in a traditional way, you'd have to carry like a backpack with eight days of food in it. So now suddenly that fifth class terrain that you felt super comfortable moving through efficiently becomes really dangerous. Um, especially since the rock quality isn't 100% on a lot of these, you're like checking the holds you're pulling on to make sure they're not going to blow apart. So she actually was a superhero through this process. She made a lot of the linkups work where she would do like a, you know, 15 or a 20 mile backpacking day to go to a pass. And I would come across and nail like four or five peaks and meet up and camp with her at the pass, restock my food, 
and then take off the next day to continue. And she would hike back out to the car and move the car around to the other end of the range. Um, (laughs) So like some situations like that, where you're, you're coordinating, okay, she's got to go in here and be to this point by this time. And we've got to meet up and that'll be my restock. And then she's got to get, okay, it works out for her to get out and drive around and she'll be there on time to pick me up. So it's like, you're doing support crew logistics in, you know, fairly deep backcountry and driving logistics and your own logistics. Um, yeah, it's pretty layered. <laughs> so insane. Like how that all plays in. Like, I, I, I can't even imagine uh, trying to, I mean, that's why it takes six months to plan. Right. And it's just one, th- one layer, one little layer of the onion after, after the other, but what's the, uh, what's the high point and low point of, of the hundred peaks for you? Um, the low point was probably, I think, uh, on day 24 or 25, I was climbing Saska, Cardinal, Emerald, and I forget the name of the fourth peak in that group, but I'd, I'd also, cause there's a film coming out about this, uh, journey to 100. It's about my journey to hundred FKTs and these hundred mountains. Uh, it's going to launch in February through athletic brewing. It's going to, it's, it's, I've, I've seen the finished thing. It's, it is amazing. Um, really amazing footage of some of the stuff I've talked about, the glaciers, the bushwhacking, the, the, the climbing on the fifth class terrain. Um, so I had to coordinate like, you know, I wanted to go to sleep after a big backcountry push, but instead, like I stayed up late coordinating with a film crew and then our pizza that we ordered, they were understaffed due to COVID. So it never arrived. So ended up that Ashley saved the day and had to go drive and pick it up from the pizza place herself. And, you know, ended up just super stressed out, very little sleep. What should have been like a night of extra sleep turned into a night of very little sleep. And my gut, I woke up the next day and my gut was just upside down from the combination of the, you know, eating super late, hardly sleeping and being stressed out. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't get food down. And so the whole first half of this day, it's like, I already know, like I'm way behind. I'm already down to like my fighting weight, right? Like, you know, four or 5% body fat. I'm like, if I, I don't have much left to give, like if I don't start getting calories down, this will either become very serious today or it'll become very serious here within the next few days because my body will be so behind that I can't, I can't get it back. Yeah. Catch up. Um, and so just like hiked into this day, just like gut upside down, feeling like I was going to vomit for the whole first half of the day. It wasn't until I summited, like, I think we were two peaks into the day and finally I'm like, okay, like I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better. I'm able to get a little food and water down. All right. This is going to be, that was tough to go through to be like, you know, this one mistake might be it. Like, if stuff keeps just backing up and backing up, that was pretty, pretty tough to like mentally stay calm and just stay mm-hmm. in a state of believing and just stay to stay in a state of just wait, suspend judgment, gather more evidence, try more things. That was a, that was a rough low point for sure. A high point. Oh man, this one, I was actually in a, I was in a terrible state of suffering just really like, cause we we'd been pushing hard for like, I don't know, 15 days in a row, we were coming into a goody peak and it has, I chose to climb it a more classic way instead of the easiest way, mm-hmm. um, up the Northeast buttress, which is like 2000 feet of easy fifth class rock climbing. And 
I just remember like being in this deep state of suffering, but also it was like this perfect degree of difficulty with the rock climbing where every move was hard enough to be very focused, but also easy enough that you just kind of flowed like very quickly from one move to the next. And it was just like 2000 feet of just go (laughs) just hand over hand, foot over foot, amazing exposure below you. And I remember just, even though I was just being in like deep exhausted fatigue, just like getting to the top and flopping down and just being like, yes, that was so good. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. A good moment on Goody Peak. (laughs) So let's go and talk about the film a little bit more. Um, And I'm glad you brought that up uh, just a little bit ago. So the journey to 100 comes out in February. And so I want to talk about like the logistics of the film crew. Like how often is the crew following along uh, with you? Like, was there a few different uh, cameramen that were blasting some of these, uh, some of these summits with you? Is that like, how does that, how does that work with the film crew? So a ton of it was shot on GoPro that myself and my climbing, climbing partners would carry. Nice. Um, so that's where most of the footage comes from. And then on four of the peaks, an actual film crew with like heavy duty, like real deal film cameras. I felt terrible for them. Cause I'm like, guys, the <laughs> clock, the clock is still running. Right. So <laughs> the hope is that since you're fresh and I'm 40 days deep, that this will work out. But like at some point, I'll, if, I, if you're not hanging, I'll tell you like, sorry, I've got to keep going because I have to get to right. such and such point before such and such time. Um, <laughs> so there were definitely some real moments out there where, where yeah, there was, there was some suffering all around, some suffering all around. Let's say it that way. Um, but yeah, about four of the peaks there, there was a film crew, you know, drone footage and, you know, big cameras and all that. Yeah. Now, how much are you involved, uh, you know, from the back end side of things? Because, I mean, obviously, you you know firsthand experience, like how some of these, you know, trains look and trails look. And does that help you play into like the production side of things? Did you have any any part of that whatsoever? You know, a lot of those decisions were left up to the creative team. Um, obviously they gleaned a lot from me. I talked about what the high and the low points were like important parts of the traverse, uh, you know, things like I just mentioned to you where I chose to climb goody via the Northeast buttress, um, like things like that, that are going to be important to the mountaineering community. I made sure like some of that got included in the storyline, but then a lot of the stuff as far as which parts of the story made it in the final cut was in the creative team's hands. And, you know, so like, obviously, like I put three years of my life into this hundred FKT project and I Mm -hmm. put uh, 50 days of amazing all-in adventuring into this uh, hundred peaks for my final FKT. And the, the finished film is a short doc. So, you know, it's right around 30 minutes long. And so, yeah, the, 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 the first time through it, I had like, it was a struggle not to be like, oh man, there's so much that didn't make it in. Like there's so much more story to tell, yeah. but also like on the other hand, it's like, it gives me permission to like have conversations like this, to talk about some of the yeah. storytelling, some of the experiences that, you know, you can't, I mean, they're not going to make a 50 day long video. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to shove 50 days into a, into a 30 minute <laughs> window. So I, yeah, I can totally it, get that. Even if they had 90 minutes, right. It still would have been a difficult task. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> the more, what I found is I've watched it a few times now and every time I watch it, 
I appreciate more and more what is in the story and the story that yeah. is in there. Right. Cause I'm the only one that sees it from the perspective of right. the parts of the story that aren't in there. Everyone yeah. else is going to see it and they're only going to see what is in there. Right. And so every time I watch it, I get closer and closer to going, wow, like this is really going to move people. Like this is really going to cool. inspire people. Um, you know, it speaks, it speaks to young people and it speaks to my students. It's, I think it speaks to anybody that has pursuits in the mountains. I think it speaks to anybody who has a love for pushing their body or trail running. I think it even speaks to people that like are in that point where they kind of realize they've, you know, maybe let some things go in their life that they shouldn't have. And, and kind of a call to action to kind of turn that around and re-engage with yourself and start pursuing the things that you, you know, you want to be pursuing again. Oh, hundred um, percent. When, uh, so it comes out in February, where, where's, uh, people going to, where are people going to be able to watch it? So we are, we are currently constructing a big launch day event. I believe February 12th is the penciled in day right now, and it's going to be a simultaneous in-person and virtually broadcasted event where it'll like sort of like how film festivals went virtual, where you could buy yep. your tickets and like at a certain time you could tune in. Uh, but if you didn't watch by X amount of time, it went dark again and you wouldn't be able to watch it. So I think that launch event will be February 12th. And then we'll do a couple more uh, showings at some major, some major cities like uh, Denver. So that one, first one is going to be from New York. And then I think they're going to do one from Denver. We're talking about one in Portland. And then after that, it'll go live uh, either on outside TV or on the Athletic Brewing uh, YouTube. Uh, they're still deciding uh, whether they're going to do outside TV or YouTube. But eventually at that point, it'll be available to live stream for people just whenever they want at home. Dude, well, I, can't, I can't wait to watch that. I think it's going to be fun. I've seen the trailer uh, many times and people could watch the trailer on YouTube. Correct. I mean, that's, yep. um, that's available on YouTube. So if you want to go get a taste, Ooh, of what, it might be, it might be Vimeo. It might be Vimeo. Right, I'll, sorry, I'll yeah, make it, sure I'll make sure you have a link to put yep. in the show notes. Uh, you're actually right. It, it is, it is a uh, Vimeo, not, not YouTube. It is Vimeo. Um, but we will put that in the show notes as well, but I've, I've seen the trailer. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing to what, what's in it now. Like, so I can't wait to see what the full 30 minutes looks like, but, uh, what, so last question is what's, what's next for, for you? What, what got anything planned out right now? Well, like I mentioned, uh, uh it's kind of fun for me to slip into a mentor role and, 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 uh, an organizer role with these, these two kids, Travis and Nathan, who are going to go for this really big peak undertaking down in uh, California. Don't want to give too much away, but, uh, I think it's going to be a cool thing. It's one of those things where it's like, if I had the time off, I would, I would be the one to go do it. But because I'm you know, into my career and I only have 80 days off and the number of peaks that are on this list, it just, no matter how you slice it, it doesn't fit into 80 days. Yeah. And, uh, so it's kind of fun to play the role of like passing the torch and seeing what these kids will go do. And then on my own docket, like I'm not ready to be dead yet. I'm not retiring. Um, definitely have some more run scrambles, got some more amazing Canyon loops that I'm going to turn into FKTs in mm -hmm. Utah. Um, so people can watch for those coming on the FKT website, going to be doing some, some sp obviously speaking and touring with this movie as it releases. And, uh, I think I've got a few international FKTs, you know, due to COVID, I hadn't ch been able to chase yeah. any of my international goals. So I think I've got, I think I got some big stuff in some other countries where I'm going to go, you know, knock on the door and say, hello. <laughs> <laughs> how many, how many FKTs do you currently have right now? Cause you're over a hundred at this point. 107. 
107. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jesus. Just keep on going, man. There's, I think 200 is, is right around the corner. So you might as well just go for that. Right. Skip hopping a jump to get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've always said it, I've said it all along. It's like the way, you know, you're, you're aligned properly. The way, you know, you're doing the things you love to do is that the way you want to celebrate having done the thing is by doing more of the thing. Yeah. Right. It's like, just cause I hit a hundred, I'm not like, Oh sweet. I'm done. Oh, can't finally can right. rest. It's like, I literally finished. And I was like, man, we're in this, we're in this area. We're near Mount St. Helens. There's like two or three other things I'd love to go do here. My, uh, you know, my body was way too thrashed at that point to actually yeah. go do it, but I still wanted to, because it's what I love doing. Right. Um, so <laughs> yeah, don't, don't see myself just, uh, calling it, calling it in a day and phoning it into the uh, grave at any point soon. So <laughs> Yeah. More well, to come for sure. More to yeah, come for sure. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. I, I know that there's a lot more to, to you and to, to, you know, the FKTs and stuff. So I wish you the best of luck. And it was a pleasure to, to have you on and pleasure to finally get a chance to have a full conversation with you and, and learn a lot more. I hope our listeners got just as much out of the conversation as I did, because it was, I had so much fun uh, listening to your, to your story. So thank you very much. Jeff, it was an absolute pleasure. It was, it, I, hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to come back and we'll be able to talk more. Um, oh, hell yeah. This man. was really good, man. This was really good. Yeah. I'd love <laughs> to have you on anytime. So we'll, we'll make it happen for sure. All right, that was Jason Hardrath, king of the FKTs. Uh, shout out to uh, to him. Thank thank you very much for uh, for joining me in that conversation, sharing your journey. Uh, it was just amazing. I hope you guys took a little bit out of out of that conversation. I know I really enjoyed talking to him, and it was probably one of the coolest stories that I've heard so far in this podcast. I mean, there's been some really good ones, but I love talking to runners that are pushing the limits once they put their mind to something. They step into the pain cave and they walk out a better athlete. This is just another great example of that. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I had a great time uh, in that conversation. Thank you again, everybody, and I'll catch you on the trails real soon. Music for the Trail Life podcast was provided by the Poor Dirty Astronauts with lyrics written by Matt Meyer. Matt Meyer.